Good morning, everyone. Well, it is good to be here again, and um, it's uh, nice to be able to not have to take off right away after the service. I get to say hi and, and chat a little bit following. I remember last time we were here, you had a congregational meeting, so we really didn't have a, a lot of, uh, of time to be able to interact. So it's nice to be here once again. So thank you for opening yourselves and inviting me to uh, come and speak once more. Sometimes I like to uh, introduce myself just simply by saying uh, I'm a shepherd. And of course everybody thinks, well yes, he's been a pastor for a number of years and uh, he's probably involved in some kind of pastoral work today, but uh, the truth of the matter is, is I am a shepherd, literally. I am also a farmer and uh, we have over 100 newborn baby lambs on the ground as we speak. <laughs> so that does give me some unique insights into ministry and pastoral ministry, uh, particularly. The term pastor, pastoral, is actually from the, the uh, shepherding analogy. Uh, the shepherd taking the sheep out to... Uh, uh, new pastures to two, new uh, grazing areas, looking after them, keeping them, guarding them. Now, of course, I don't do all of that myself now in the more modern world that we live in. Um, the needs of my family would not allow me simply to spend 24 hours a day sitting out with my sheep. And so I have other shepherds, they're called guardian dogs, and they're actually the ones that stay with the sheep 24 hours, and they do just what an, a shepherd in an ancient context would do uh, back then. They guard, they protect, and uh, I was just actually thinking yesterday um, about one of the elements of uh, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. We're not going to be speaking on that today, but uh, just in reflection... Um, near the end of that psalm is the uh, phrase, you prepare a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. And uh, in our neck of the woods, we are just literally surrounded by predators. We have uh, probably uh, a coyote for every square mile that we have out there. Um, besides that, we have the odd wolf that comes through and the odd uh, uh, puma, we call them, or, or um, cougar looking for the right word here. In fact, last August I came face to face with a cougar. It was about 10 feet away from me. And uh, so the guard dogs, their job, of course, is to keep the entire perimeter of, of wherever the sheep are grazing uh, safe. And the sheep are taken out into the pasture. They're led back into the corrals. And the sheep have no idea uh, of all the dangers and all of the, you know, the predators that are around them that uh, the moment that those dogs would, you know, would be absent, they would be in and uh, wreaking havoc. And, uh, and yet they go out in peace, they graze, they grow, get fat, and they come back in. And uh, with very little understanding of the real dangers that face them every day because the shepherds are out there. And when we think of that in terms of our Lord, uh, that's exactly what he's saying. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And most of the time we have no idea what is surrounding us, what would like to harm us, what would like to 
uh, get at us, get at our families. And the occasional time when, when uh, you know, the Lord allows a little bit of, uh, of affliction, a little bit of, uh, of heartache at times, a little bit of, of trouble, sometimes we think our world has come to an end, and yet we rarely understand just how much God protects us day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, allows us to go out and come in. And so that's just a little insight just from shepherding, just some of the things that I have uh, kind of learned as, as uh, you know, I go about my, my other career. But that's not what we're going to be looking at today. We're actually going to be looking at prayer. Last time I was here, we were working our way through the, you were working your way through the book of Colossians. I had the opportunity to uh, speak on one passage out of uh, the book of Colossians, but uh, it's a book on encouragement and uh, perseverance in the midst of trials and tribulations. And um, I really felt a burden last time that I was here to pray for this assembly. And uh, I knew that you were looking at decisions and uh, uh, an uncertain future. We're not quite sure what direction that um, the church was to go in, but God knows. God knows what direction. God has a purpose. And I really, really felt a burden to pray. And I believe that God is still working through this assembly. And, uh, you know, put your trust and your confidence in Him. And uh, He will direct your paths. I really believe that. Um, the passage that we're going to be looking at today is actually a very, very familiar one. We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer in uh, Matthew chapter 6. And um, it's hard to know actually where to begin when it comes to looking at this particular prayer because like all passages of Scripture... Uh, they are in a larger context. And this particular prayer is within a much larger context that we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is really a, uh, almost a manifesto of the kingdom of God, a manifesto of a new covenant people. And uh, so Jesus is really laying down, in a sense, almost a new law for a new, new people. It's not really a law because it's birthed in the grace of Jesus Christ. But it is, a, it is a, a, um, a calling, a life, a purpose that God has called us to. And right smack in the middle of all of this is this encouragement and this instruction on prayer. And it really begins in verse 5 with Jesus... Um, discouraging His disciples. And this Sermon on the Mount is for the disciples. I could go back and show you specifically. But it is for the people of God. It's for the disciples that Christ had called around Him, that He was calling to be His followers and the foundation of the new people, the new covenant people that were to come as a result of His death and His resurrection. And um, he starts pointing out some of the things that, that are taking place within their context, their culture, uh, the, the Pharisees and, and their traditions and their habits. And, and he warns them not to pray as the Pharisees do. In, uh, you know, to keep on uh, babbling as it were, thinking that they're heard for their many words. 
And in other words, uh, um, you know, meaningless recitations in prayer, meaningless repetitions, etc. He says, that's not what prayer is all about. And he says, and then he says, I, you know, I'm going to teach you how to pray, essentially, is what he's saying. In verse 9, he says, this then is how you should pray. Now, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> what has happened to the Lord's Prayer? over the history of the church. By and large, it has become, in many cases, a meaningless repetition. We have become so familiar with it and we recite it in so many different contexts that we do it by heart and by rote. And often, we don't think about what it is that we are praying about. And and so, in a sense, the very thing that Jesus is warning His disciples not to do, in giving them this model prayer, we've turned the prayer into that very same thing. A meaningless repetition. So, the first thing, obviously, that I would encourage you with is, is that that not happen in, in our lives. How are we to respond to this prayer? Is, did Jesus give us this prayer in order for us simply to recite it once a day, twice a day, three times a day, seven times a day? Different traditions do that. I think the key to understanding this particular prayer is in the very words, this then is how you should pray. The key word there, how, how you should pray. Notice that Jesus didn't say this is what you should pray. He says this is how you should pray. So it's very clear then that from the beginning Jesus is giving them, uh, He's teaching them about prayer. And He's using this then, this prayer as a model. So in other words, it's not what, it's not the exact words that we should be reciting and praying necessarily. Not that they are wrong, by the way. Uh, we certainly can pray the Lord's Prayer in, in certain contexts, certain churches. They have liturgies as well. We can, we can still use those kinds of things and benefit from them and you know, have significance drawn from them. But the thing is, is that we have to, our heart has to be there. Our focus has to be where it needs to be on the Lord, our, on our Lord. And, uh, but what Jesus fundamentally, I think, is pointing out here in the prayer that He gives, a very short prayer, very short model prayer, is that it is the content of the prayer that is very, very important for us. There's basically six phrases that Jesus uh, gives to His disciples that I think form the foundation of all healthy prayer, of all prayer. There are other passages of Scripture, there are other places in the Scripture where we see Jesus praying, sometimes praying all night. We're never actually told necessarily what He is praying about, although we can kind of, you know, we can kind of imply, get, get the implication of it because of what He's facing or, excuse me, who, you know, who He's ministering to at that particular time. But we're not specifically told the content of His prayer. But He does pray. At other times, He instructs His disciples, could you not pray one hour? Now, I don't know about you, but there are many times when I have 
I have endeavored to take time to pray and I've, you know, best laid plans. I've intended that I was going to pray for an hour and I run out of things to pray for. And how do you pray for an hour, let alone all night? I think if we understand the foundations of what Jesus is teaching in this prayer, we would not have any issues with prayerlessness. We would not have any issues with, you know, what should be the focus of our prayer? Where do we go in prayer? What, you know, what is prayer all about? If we learn each of these components, I think that prayer now will be, you know, it would not be difficult to, to fill 20 minutes, one half hour, one hour, if that's how the Lord leads you in prayer. Um, teach us to pray is really what the disciples are, uh, are, are asking Jesus to do when Jesus gives them this prayer here. So what I want to do is look at this prayer then. Let's read it together. And again, let's try not to just simply recite it because we have it memorized, but let's, let's meditate on it. Let's think on it for just a moment. This then is how you should pray, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, in some translations, it goes on to say, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And there's nothing amiss with that. Those, all those themes are, of course, found throughout God's Word. Just in some of the earliest manuscripts of the uh, original Bible, uh, those aren't found. So that's why you find some translations a little bit different on that last part. But... The focus is on the content of what God is, or what Jesus is saying in this prayer. And I want you to look at, uh, notice two things about this prayer. First of all, number one, the first three statements in this prayer are all focused on God. Did you notice that? The first three statements of this prayer are all focused on God. The last three statements of this prayer are focused upon petitioning God for us, for our needs. Bringing our needs to the Lord. So first then, that, that kind of gives us a clue as to really how, how we should approach prayer. How often have you found yourself, I certainly find myself, coming to God in prayer and saying, Oh Lord, I need You today. Oh Lord, I, I have a need. Um, I'm in trouble. Or I have a financial difficulty that needs to be met. Or uh, you know, so-and-so is, is um, uh, really being a bother and I need You to intervene. 
we, we tend to come to God, and I, and I want to be very careful when I use this particular statement, because God knows our hearts. And if we haven't been instructed in prayer, perhaps we do it without really even understanding what we're doing. And God knows that. God understands that. But I think there are times when we, we come to God more like He's... A, a, and I use the term sugar daddy. I don't know if you know what I mean by that. But, you know, He's the one that grants all wishes and, and dispenses all good things. Rather than first coming to God as our sovereign Lord, as the Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, the One who has revealed Himself to be be-all and above all. In fact, what, what theologians would refer to as transcendent. He is so above and beyond, He's so far above who we are, that if it were not for what He did, through the cross of Calvary, when God becomes man, becomes a tabernacles among us and becomes flesh, we would have no possible way of ever touching God and ever knowing God. And that's, that's the context of, 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 of what transcendence is all about. But God is not just transcendent. He is also imminent. He became close to us. Close to us through His promises, through the Old Testament, through the covenants that He entered into His people, uh, with His people throughout the Old Testament, and ultimately, through Jesus Christ Himself, God coming in the flesh, dwelling among us, and revealing the Father to us, and then going beyond that, uh, dying, rising in from the dead, in order that we might be transformed so that the presence of the Lord could actually be within us. And so, when we come to prayer, we need to think, we need to follow the instructions that Jesus gives to us. He begins by saying, Our Father. So, the focus of prayer needs to begin on God. I don't know about you, but have you ever been in a particular situation in your life where you don't know how to get out? You're, you're in a pickle. Um, in a bind, You're, you've got a situation and you don't know which way to turn. And then somebody else comes along. And basically, just by talking to them and telling them about your situation, they bring a whole different perspective to your situation. And suddenly, you see a pathway out. When it comes to prayer, we begin by focusing upon God. God, so much higher, so much greater, so much above our situation. Sometimes it's simply in the worship of God that our perspective changes. Suddenly that which we thought was so important is not so important anymore. And that which we kind of thought was trivial and of little concern and little importance suddenly becomes significant. So significant that we see a pathway through where we didn't see before. And so he begins by addressing God. But he addresses God as Father. From the very beginning, there's something about God 
as believers that we need to understand and we need to know, and that is that through Jesus Christ, we have come into a unique relationship. Now, this is not a relationship based on the fact that God is our Creator. There are many in the world that see God in that way. That God is the Creator. We are His created. On that basis then, He is our Father. And, you know, every one of us are brothers or brothers and sisters. I've, I've heard that preached many times in different situations. And to the point that it... it I mean, it's, it's true to the point of, of God being Creator. But it does not take into account the fallenness of humanity. It doesn't take into account our sin and our separation from God. What Jesus has accomplished upon the cross is to bring us back together, reconciling us in His body so that God is reconciled to us, we are reconciled to Him, and we now stand in relationship with the Father. That's the first thing that we are reminded in prayer is that we now stand in a covenant relationship. When we say, Father God, we are not speaking to somebody who is distant and unknown. We are speaking to one that we have a real relationship with. In fact, Scripture uses the term in the original language, in the Aramaic, Abba, or Ava is the... Uh, the soft B is, is what is used there. And it is a term of endearment. It is what a child would say to her father or his father, Abba. And so Jesus is saying, our Father, but He doesn't stop there. He says, our Father in heaven. He makes it very, very clear that God is God, that He's above all, that He is in heaven. His perspective is very different from ours. So I was saying earlier about finding a way out of a problem, um, you can use the analogy of somebody who is, say, stuck in a mountain range. I, how many have ever hiked in the mountains? I used to, as a, as a uh, young person, I'd, I did a lot of hiking, and sometimes you would take a wrong turn, and, uh, and you'd find yourself in a box canyon. A box canyon is a, is a canyon that has no way out. Basically, the way that you go in, you have to turn around and, and go back out because there's no other way forward. And uh, I remember one time in a box canyon, we were there, and then a, a plane passed over top. And I looked at my brother-in-law and I said, what would you give right now to have a radio receiver um, you know, hooked up to that uh, pilot up in that plane and just ask him, where are we and what direction should we go? Because he looks down, he can see the whole thing. All we see is this wall in front of us and no way forward at all. And so we're reminded again that our Father is not just an earthly dad. He is not just you know, somebody who's just a bigger version of, our, of uh, you know, our, our human relationships. He is above all. He is beyond all. In fact, so much above and beyond that the next phrase that Jesus uses is hallowed or holy be His name. And this is what we always have to be mindful of. Now, God is not somebody who is uh, um, offended if we forget certain protocol. He's not somebody who's got a ruler in his hand and ready to smack you over the hand if you kind of say the wrong word at the wrong time. 
That's not what this is all about. This is about recognizing and understanding His very essential nature. God is holy. God is the righteous God. He is perfection. He is the the very image of sanctification, of sacred. Um, That is who He is. And there is no other. There is one and only one. And this is the one to whom we must ultimately bow. So as believers, we have the opportunity to recognize who God really is and come to Him in worship as one who loves Him. But the important thing that we need to remember and understand is that always will remain the same. It's, we, we simply cannot just disregard God or treat Him in a cavalier fashion. It's, it's in our... In our uh, um, context today, in our, in our, uh, our culture today, um, informality, uh, familiarity, all of these various different things are something that is basically endemic. I mean, one of the things that I have to debate every time I go to a, a church to preach when I don't know the church all that well is, should I even wear a tie? You know, what, you know what should, where, where will that put me? We're, we're in that kind of a situation now where we, you know, we just... We don't have a, a decorum that is standard. And that comes through in terms of our relationships as well. At college, where I'm teaching, well, up until probably about 12, 15 years ago, it was, you know, what do you call me? It, I mean, there was, there was no question. It was Professor Guthrie. That all changes about 12, 15 years back when I have students simply coming, refusing to call me by that and calling me by my first name. Well, you know, I get used to that. It's not something that I'm too particularly concerned about. But I do see within a cultural context that the gradual decay of respect. And the problem is, for me as a human, that's not, there's probably no great significance with, with that happening to me. But when it comes to God, I think there is. I think there is. God is God. And yes, we can come running into His presence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of our, the, the work of our Savior. But there are times when I think we no longer actually believe that God is holy. That hasn't changed. And it will never change. And there is a place in our prayer as we worship, because this is really what it is all about, where God needs to be in our hearts and in our minds where He truly is and who He truly is. And that's for our benefit, because when that takes place and God is truly on the throne of our hearts, When we come to ask Him then, it's not such a stretch to believe that God is able to meet our needs because He is who He is. And so, the very first context, and I've uh, um, wanted to take uh, a a little more time to deal with that because I think that's really at the crux of, of the Lord's Prayer. So He says, Our Father who art in heaven 
hallowed be your name. And then there's two other things that he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come. We ever wonder, what should we pray, be praying for? When Jesus says, your kingdom come, what he is talking about, it's not, he's not talking about God you know, um, be enthroned, you know, take your throne, uh, to take authority. He's not asking us to pray that God do that because he's already there. God is always the king. You know, he is always the, uh, the one who is ultimately in authority. Specifically, when he says your kingdom come, he's talking about the kingdom coming in salvation. The kingdom coming in terms of the gospel being proclaimed in the earth and people being saved. It's probably no simpler than to state that. We wonder, God, what is your will? How should we pray? Jesus makes it abundantly clear. Pray for the kingdom to come in the hearts and lives of all that you know. And, and so when we understand that, well, it's easy to pray because we, obviously we begin with our most immediate circle, our family. And we all know people that need to know the presence of the kingdom in their lives. They need to be saved. The need is just as great today as it ever was. God has no grandchildren. God relates only to those who come through Jesus Christ. So the need is there. And so we pray that the hearts and the lives of individuals that we know be open to hear the Gospel, to receive the Gospel. And we go out from there. We go out to our community. We go out to our, our province, our nation, the nations around. We all support... Uh, um, what do you call it? We, uh, missionaries uh, from our various churches. We were just talking about one that we in Entwistle and, and this church mutually support. Are we praying for them? Are we praying the, that the kingdom of God would come in their ministry? Boy, when we start putting that together, that's God's will. We don't have to worry, are we praying God's will? Because He makes it very clear. Here, Thy kingdom come. And uh, boy, that will take any length of time. You know, it could take... Five minutes, it could take two hours, depending on where God takes us in terms of praying for His kingdom to come. And there's another element of that, that prayer too, Thy kingdom come. It's also a prayer, come Lord Jesus. It is, it is the, the prayer for Him to ultimately return. Now obviously we know the day and the hour we don't know, uh, but it is set by the Father. And when we pray, Jesus, come, it always keeps our focus upon the, 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 the true goal rather than being distracted by secondary goals around us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And here he's talking not just about the salvation of others, but really what we would refer to as sanctification or the call to live a disciple's life, a holy life, a a life of righteousness because we're asking for God's will to be performed in the hearts and lives, first of us as individuals, and then of others. And so really we have the full gamut of what the church is all about. Number one, it is a gateway to the world, a, 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 a conduit through which the Gospel is proclaimed. And number two, it is a place where believers come to be discipled and to be taught how to walk, how to live, how to grow in Jesus Christ, taught the Word of God. And so there, 
boy, oh boy, you know, when Jesus said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, uh, you know, he didn't leave much out, did he? And so, you know, are we going to, you know, do we, do we have enough to pray about? I, I think we probably do. So, the first half of the prayer then is that focus on those things that are of importance to God, beginning with a worship of God Himself, and then a focus on the kingdom of God coming, the will of God being proclaimed. And only after that, only after that, does Jesus lead His disciples to focus on their own needs. I think that is important. I think that's very vital. Because that really is the heart of God. We learned in Philippians that Jesus, you know, uh, Paul says, have this mind which was in the same mind that was in, the, in Christ Jesus, who did not even consider you know, his, uh, the fact that he was God something to be, be uh, grasped, but emptied himself and made himself as a man, and, and not just a man, but became obedient even to death. In other words, he humbled himself to the point even of dying as a, a, a criminal for our sake. And here Jesus is showing us in the model that the focus needs to be God and others before it becomes us. Simple, simple, simple. God, others, us. I think if you remember that in prayer, that's probably, I can go home. You know, that's good. You've got it. When he says, focusing on, on our own personal needs, give us today our daily bread, we have to understand that Jesus is praying in an era, in a context in which the average laborer was a day laborer. And a day laborer is one who would look for a job, would be hired on the basis of each day, and would be paid at the end of that day. And usually that pay would be just enough to look after their family. And so in that kind of a context, uh, give us this day our daily bread would make a whole lot of sense, wouldn't it? Because you don't know tomorrow. You've got what you have today, but you have no knowledge of whether it'll, it'll come tomorrow. And so trust in the Lord then becomes a very, very critical factor. We're in a very different age today. I'm st you know, there are still people that uh, perhaps uh, live day to day. Month to month probably is the better way that we can uh, think in terms of living today. Uh, but the, con the, the principle doesn't change. Um, sometimes we don't know where the next month's coming from. Jesus is making it very clear that we come to Him. He knows this. Pray about it. Give us this day, give us this month what we need. But I think there's a greater principle that He is uh, expressing in this statement. And that is that, number one, and this is very important in an affluent world. All things belong to God. All things. Nothing that we have is ours by virtue of who we are or by virtue of us being the in intrinsic owner of it. Everything belongs to God. And everything that we receive is given to us from God. And so... Really then the flip side of this same coin, give us this day our daily bread, is a heart of gratitude, a heart of thanksgiving. So if God has given you plenty, if God has given you abundance, it is recognizing, number one, who owns it, 
whose it belongs to, and being thankful for what God has given to us constantly. It is not just simply because of us. It is because of Him. And so a heart of thanksgiving, I think, is very, very critical, especially in a much more affluent context like we have today. So really the flip side of the same coin. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, again, I think, um, you know, the question has often been raised about, uh, you know, grace and what it means to live in the grace of Jesus Christ. And, of course, among the Baptist, uh, you know, our our Baptist context, we love to focus in on the once-for-all reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. Not only did He give us justification, but in Jesus Christ, He's given us sanctification. We put on the garments of Jesus Christ at faith. When we confess Him, we receive Jesus' righteousness. And so we stand before God fully justified, fully sanctified. But sometimes we forget. The Scripture also talks about a life of righteousness, a life of sanctification, what is often referred to as progressive, where we in our life are actually diligently moving forward into what we have already received in Jesus Christ. And so it's not popular today to speak of a life of repentance. Well, that's something we do when we receive Jesus Christ. But I really honestly believe that to a certain degree that to move ahead as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to have in our hearts that attitude that we never, ever, ever keep anything but a very short account with our Father. It doesn't matter if we have you know, repeatedly fallen into the same error, the same situation. Bring it to God. The righteous man is not the one who doesn't fall. It's the one who may fall even seven times, but gets up every time, i.e. confesses that sin to God and moves forward. It is a life of repentance. And I think there is a place for that within Christian life. And Jesus is certainly stating for us, give us, He says, forgive us our debts, our sins. But He couples that very closely with as we forgive our debtors. And you'll be, you read through the Gospels and Jesus makes this connection several times. In fact, right at the end of this prayer, it says, if, "For if you forgive men when they sin, if, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins." You know, we live in a world that loves to hold grudges. We can get caught up in bitterness. Bitterness is probably the one thing that can split a church, divide a church, you know, destroy a church ultimately. And, um, but Jesus is saying that we need to have literally a life, a daily life, where we are willing to forgive others of those things that we would consider offensive at times, that we would consider you know, a, uh, a slight against us, or whatever it might be. Not only is that something that we need to do, it's absolutely necessary because our own forgiveness is contingent upon that. Now, how that works itself out in terms of the, you know, the, the sovereign grace of God within our lives, well, I'll leave that to God to figure out for us. But He calls us to a life of repentance and a life of forgiveness. A life of forgiveness. It's 
one of the six statements that he puts in his prayer. Therefore, it is vitally important. Forgive give us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. A lot of people say, why would we pray for God not to lead us into temptation? The idea being, well, is it possible that God could lead us into temptation? Because everywhere else in Scripture it says that God does not tempt. Well, what we have going here is a, it's a figure of speech. Um, and uh, it's a, essentially a, a contrast or a complementary statement. The focus is not on the idea that God could lead us into temptation. The actual focus is on the second statement, but deliver us from evil. It strengthens, it strengthens the second statement. Not only do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, in certain circles, there's a lot of, of preaching, a lot of teaching on the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. The fact that, you know, if we walk in His ways and we confess His Word, you know, that we can walk in victory and that these, you know, we do not need to be uh, uh, concerned about the evil one and, and uh, the evil around us. But the simple fact of the matter is we're human. Um, we're, very, we're frail at times. We're weak at times. Um, you know, and as, as we get older, it's funny, uh, I don't sense that I'm getting stronger at times. Sometimes I sense that I'm getting weaker. Um, maybe that's what wisdom is all about. I don't know. But um, the simple fact is that as I was sharing at the very beginning, most of us have very little awareness of actually the dangers that face us every day and the fact that it's the grace of Jesus Christ that preserves us from them not our valiant faith not our you know um, standing strong I mean we do God encourages us to do that stand strong but more often than not God is the one that protects us from those evil and this is just a simple prayer deliver us from evil now the word evil is an adjective here and just like in English, in Greek, an adjective can also function as a noun. We would say the good, the bad, the ugly. Remember that one? Um, that's really uh, three adjectives that are functioning as a noun. The good one, the bad one, the ugly one. And so uh, uh, this is how this word may be functioning here. So in some translations it says protect, protect us from evil. Um, and in others it says protect us from the evil one. In the end it really doesn't matter because evil ultimately is the uh, brainchild of the evil one. And uh, we do, until Jesus comes again, have, there is a malevolent um, personality at work still within this world. And uh, if we do not recognize that, if we do not understand that, we're sunk before we begin. Uh, but when we do recognize it and do understand it, know that it's a reality, but then we know that Jesus has overcome, that Jesus is greater than, than that reality, then in Christ Jesus, as we journey in Him in prayer, we know that we can be delivered from that power. And that's really all that Jesus is, uh, is focusing on here. So, little prayer. Six very poignant 
statements that if we get a hold of, if we understand them, will transform our prayer life. And in fact, to the point where really the question, could you not tarry one hour, could you not pray one hour, would never be a question asked again. It'll be, Lord, you know, is that hour up already? Oh, I've got to go to work. I'd long, I want to pray a little longer. Um, it could make a huge difference in the way that we come to Christ. We come, go from being prayerless and a prayerless people to be a people of prayer. He gave us this prayer, I believe, as a model, as a guide, as a direction. Not necessarily just to recite, although that's not bad in and of itself, but we have to go far beyond that. So in keeping with that, and I thought uh, it would be good, we're going to be celebrating communion here. Um, one of the things about communion is it is a covenant meal. We celebrate God's, uh, the covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we call our vertical relationship. But we celebrate it as a fellowship. That covenant that Jesus has established with us makes us brothers and sisters not just in the term of creation, but now in the terms of redemption. We are related to one another through Jesus Christ. And so in order to, to uh, partake of communion, we have to be in fellowship with Christ and with one another. Just as Jesus say, says here, uh, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And so it's an opportunity for us to make sure that we are in fellowship, that those accounts have been canceled, as it were. And so as we <clears throat> prepare our hearts for communion, and I believe that uh, we have a song, do we? Uh, uh, 